0: This is The Right Direction. We are back this year with Season 2, Episode 1, which I think we're going to call Striggers and Storytelling, because that sounds good, like a bit of alliteration. Uh, And we are here today with Gabriella Houston, who is the author of the debut novel uh, The Second Bell with Angry Robot Books. So thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: First off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, so I'm Polish. I uh, live in the UK. I've lived in the UK my entire life. The second bell is inspired by Slavic mythology and Slavic folklore. Uh, and it's my my first novel and it's coming out with Angry Robot next week, actually, and uh, by the time you air this, it might already be. Yeah, I think think it will be out
0: by then. So they can absolutely go and buy it straight away. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) The first question I have is one that I ask people all the time when I have someone on. And it's, it's important to ask because for new writers to understand that everyone has a different process. So what I want to know is, what was your sort of process from conception to publication, and sort of what was the time frame of that? Because everyone has a really different experience.
1: Yes, it's uh, it's a complicated question, and basically, I wrote the first five pages of the second bail uh, a while ago, and then I sort of left it uh, for a year, or something while I was doing other projects, and. Um, and then i came back to it and i wrote a whole book in 3 months and then uh, i sort of you know obviously edited it had better readers go through it and when i was happy with it i started querying agents so i had i got an agent in sort of late 2018 but i parted ways with her in early 2019 because it just was. It it just sort of didn't uh, work out. It wasn't working for either of us. So, um, and then I went back out um, trying to find an agent. I did, and we went on submission uh, late 2019, and within about two weeks, I had an offer from Angry Robot.
0: <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> so impressive.
1: It, it, it's my lovely agent John Baker um, from Bella Max Morton, I think. I. I I, I think the magic of his pitch <laughs> so yeah. made this happen.
0: Well, so, you know, also, um, I suppose the magic of your writing too, I suppose that needs to be given credit as well.
1: Well, my hope is that that's what people will uh, will say. It's not something I'm supposed to say myself. Is it? No,
0: I know. It's one of those hard things, isn't it? When someone says something nice about you, you're like, well, I, I don't really like saying things like I'm. I'm very much like that. <laughs>
1: Oh, well, I, I I very much like hearing nice things said about my book. <laughs> um, I worked hard on it and I'm proud of it.
0: And and you should absolutely be proud of it. And I think you should also be proud of the fact that you were able to get the book written in three months because that is no small feat either. I, I mean, it's written to... my debut, to-
1: but I have written uh, other books and it's, this seems to be sort of an average for me for kind of like a standalone book. This is not a massive epic kind of trilogy thing. So this is a standalone, uh, a real standalone. It's a self-contained story. Um, so it was, w- once I had the sort of initial idea and it was clear in my mind, it, 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 it was quite quite easy to to write. I know everybody has a different process though. I find that when I'm in a zone, I just, you know, I sit down every day to write. Um, I usually have my writing buddies on Zoom call. So I see them hanging out in the corner of my screen and, and I just write every day. And if you write as as little as 1000 words a day, then in three months you have 90,000 words.
0: Yeah. And I suppose that's true. That's, that's one way of looking at it is, is having that those targets to hit.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's even as much as like targets. It's just, if you just write, let yourself write, um, And don't worry too much about, you know, how much sense it makes. You just sort of let it flow um, and you can always fix whatever needs fixing later. I think the worst thing someone can do is just sort of sit in front of an empty screen because that's terribly discouraging.
0: And it's interesting that you bring that up because I have a, an unpopular opinion, <laughs> I think amongst <laughs> writers, particularly new writers, that um, I don't think writer's block is a real thing and that probably gets some people's backs up. But I think you can always sit down and write something. And even if it's garbage, even if it doesn't make any sense, you're getting it down on the page and you're sort of consolidating it. So even if it's not at a publishable standard, you can, you can manipulate that you can edit that. Um, whereas when you just say I'm sitting here and I literally can't write anything, I I feel like that's a bit of an excuse for some people sometimes. And I guess it comes from to the expectation that like when we see, in movies and TV shows people write a book and they get industry level prose straight out of the gate first draft and that's kind of not how it works but i think people think that's how it works so i think that's part of it too
1: i think um i mean of course to an extent yes it can be an excuse i think it's important especially at the moment with the lockdowns and all that like it's important to acknowledge that mental health issues can be a real barrier so you know uh writer's block in as an extension of uh, sort of you know the de- de- depression or, or mental health uh issues is a very much real thing especially when in lockdown, it's very it, it can be very hard to focus. Uh, I've had a lot of people tell me that they have they can't read at the moment. Like you know, people who have been great readers their entire lives suddenly can't focus on reading a book. And I think in writing, the the one thing that i've always found to be true for me is that i can't produce art unless i'm consuming art you need to be stimulated intellectually and you need to um if you don't read if you can't focus on anything, you can't even watch anything on tv you 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 don't listen to music you don't then it's very hard to get back in a in the mind frame when you can do this of course that is that is a very unusual situation and I do think that people can, in general, get over writer's block by, you know, like you say, just putting something down. Um, Sometimes I I would say, if if I'm really stuck, if I'm really stuck, I just start writing complete nonsense. And I I mean, like, complete nonsense, you know. And the main character then decided to go shopping and do whatever. And the process of typing uh, the words actually gives you ideas it's right the process of writing physical process of putting words on a page uh, makes your brain work in a different way and it it helps you get through but of course if you can't face a computer screen and you just feel horrible then that it might not feel like the most helpful advice it's, <laughs> this is so this is, I, I'm, so i'm definitely caveating that advice to people who are not in you know the depths of this despair currently.
0: No, absolutely, and that's where I guess it's just sort of a semantics thing that I guess I'm seeing those two things as completely different. Like, obviously, if you're or you're suffering from from depression and things like that, that's obviously a valid excuse. But I think you you do raise an interesting point because uh, I was talking to a friend online. I think it was yesterday, and she said to me because she started writing again, and she said mm-hmm. that you know it's about pushing through that barrier because writing. Is a muscle that you have to use, and if you don't use it, you lose it, and you have to sort of that retrain yourself. True. And I think that's true of reading as well. That like if you fall out of reading and you fall out of the habit of reading, it can be hard to to pick it up again. Um, that is
1: absolutely true. That, that I absolutely agree with. Yes, the thing is, is, like I know that people can sometimes get a little upset when you you know people talk about um, just being in a habit and a discipline of writing because they feel it is an attack. It's more of a strategy. And if you write 100 words a week, I mean, it's, it's better than nothing, but it will not amount to a book very quickly, will it? So it's just if you do have a plan to to write a whole novel, it's a certain element of discipline is, is necessary, and it is involved. And I, I really think that also, like, writing generally is better when it kind of comes out in a chunk rather than being split in
0: really small segments yes
1: so everybody has those projects whether they sort of started years ago and then they kind of see try and see if they can come back into and I I find it never your writing style changes ever so subtly. I mean you learn I've learned a lot you know between my different projects so when you come back to it you either have to rewrite it completely or um or you will find that the second half will be completely different to the first half in tone and message and everything else i think there is a, an element of discipline involved but People don't like hearing about it, so
0: no. (laughs) Um, But then, often the truest advice is the one that people don't like to hear.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I don't. You know, I try not to be in the business of telling people how to do their stuff, but yeah, well, that's uh, we'll just keep we'll
0: just keep it as advice. We're not we're not (laughs) saying it's it's absolute rules here, but it's it's just advice.
1: (laughs) Yes. So Um, it it definitely works for me.
0: It's interesting that you mention that about the uh, the tone of of the stories that you're telling because at the end of last year through to the beginning of this year worked with, uh, an editor on my manuscript and it started out in the beginning as a YA story, but by the end of it, I just thought it's some of the stuff that's happening in here is too dark to mm-hmm. really be able to de- to delve into it. You know, I, it needed to be an adult story. So it was interesting that you, you sort of progressed through this with the notes and everything else. And then when you go back from the start to looking at the end, tonally they don't match because you do. And I think it is every book that people write should be a learning experience uh, in one way or another, whether that's learning something about yourself with the Mm -hmm. theme, whether that's learning about how to write or whether it's both, I think um, you do learn stuff. And that's why when you go through sort of a first draft, you, you can see that from page one to page 400.
1: I mean, you know, the, the sort of situation you were describing, um, I find that the, the, the distinction between YA and adult, I have very strong feelings about. I feel <laughs> that those um, age categories, I mean, they're a very a very modern thing and they are uh, bookseller-led. Um, they're incredibly artificial and they have uh, sort of swollen up into this kind of monstrosity where people feel that they have to tick a certain number of boxes in order to fit into a category for YA or you know you might be writing a book about someone's rite of passage and then you'll get the agent or editor come back come back to you like yes but you know where's the romance you need to have your romance in YA obviously not all editors not all agents but it's it, it very much feels like oh this trope only belongs in YA and I, or this trope only belongs in adult or Apple middle grade. I just, I don't find those categories to be particularly helpful. I know if a book is categorized as YA, I roughly know what to expect. But that in itself is not particularly helpful to me either. I just read the blurb and that the blurb should tell me what the book's about. It's, um, I think, these days, I think um, Jane Eyre would be categorized as as YA. And it it would feel odd, wouldn't it?
0: It would, yes. <laughs> to,
1: to, put, to put it on the shelf in the YA category. I think most most Jane Austen would be categorized as YA. I mean, most of her characters are what, 19, 18? Yeah. So prime sort of YA, YA category, especially with books written by women, that seems to be, uh, they are particularly prone to be categorized as YA, even if they don't necessarily... fit that that mold yeah I'm, i'm i'm not a fan of those distinctions because you you know you sit down because you want to write a story you have some ideas about what you want to explore in a book you have some ideas for the characters the settings and you write the book and then where to put it on shelf shouldn't be you you shouldn't sort of trim the book to cut certain bits out because like oh no this doesn't fit in the ya market You know, I'm writing a book for 19-year-olds, not 22-year-olds. It just, I, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure that's entirely helpful. And, and I have heard recently, um, I've I've had some people tell me that the uh, the current trend apparently is that YA as a category is being phased out because sort of young adult readers, people who read YA books are not just sort of young adults as 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 category suggests. They're mostly read by adults anyway. And people who are sort of older teens want to read from the adult book category. So it just, it just became this thing where uh, this category seems to be sort of less and less popular in terms of uh, like book selling and uh, projects that are being bought. And it's more like, oh, it's either, either sort of middle grade now or it's adult.
0: Yep. No. And I absolutely agree Um, with that. And I'm actually really, really happy that you brought it up (laughs) because I wasn't going to (laughs) go into it, but that's part of the reason, another part of the reason why uh, I decided to shift into that adult gear because um, so much of it feels stale because it was about checking boxes. And I also had a video on my YouTube channel about this, uh, probably, I think it was at the start of last year, talking about how the online reading community that was in the YA bracket to begin with have grown up and they're in their 20s and early 30s now, but they're still the market that's catering YA. So like it has aged up with them. And I feel like sometimes Mm -hmm. the the younger readers have been left behind. And so that might be why it's sort of collapsing in on itself because now those readers are seeking out some more mature fiction and it's kind of left that that market so even
1: I wouldn't even um, make that distinction more mature less mature when it comes to YA in adult fiction because you know uh, Leigh Bardugo's uh, um, Grishaverse novels uh, they're technically YA you know so uh, The Six of Crows it's technically YA or none of the characters are older than 19 from what I remember and it deals with just tremendously dark uh and brutal subject matter and they they are of course some of the sort of more beloved and more typical YA tropes in there but it's it's also very dark and I feel that the way that some of those topics are handled is very mature and it's very um, sort of I don't know uh, advanced if you say new one nuanced is the word I was looking yeah. for Nuance. that distinction YA category does of like YA versus adult is doing disservice to a lot of fantastic writers whose books are only put in the YA category because the main character is uh, sort of 15 16 upwards
0: and I guess I say mature just for want of a better term, because I, I don't know how else to distinguish between them, <laughs> because that line did get blurred, especially for a, for a while there, there was a lot of really really dark stories that were coming out with some very heavy heavy themes that were put in the YA category. But yeah, it is that it is that expectation that because the character is a teenager, the audience needs to be a teenager, and I think that that's. That's where the disservice is done because just because someone isn't the same age or the same race or the same gender or anything like that as you doesn't mean that you can't connect with a book. And, and that's where I think the disservice comes.
1: Yes. And I, I you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, it, it, exactly what you say, but also, you know, even when it comes to the level of nuance that you want to put in a book, I, don't, I think that sometimes people kind of stop themselves. They think, oh, well, I'm writing a YA book or I'm writing a middle grade book. I should simplify. I should take some of this away. And I, I, I think it's doing a disservice to, 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 to themselves. And I think it's uh, underestimating the readers a little bit. And people are generally moving away from that. Happily so, because there's been quite a few wonderful books. I just finished reading uh, the Gilded Ones by namina Forna, which is a fantastic book, and I think it would sort of generally fall into the YA category. But the subject matter is not—it's not simple. It's nuanced. It's brutal. It's dark. It's Uh, it feels quite, you know, very real in terms of sort of social taboos. And I really hope that we are kind of going to be moving away from this category. I mean, obviously I'm starting out in my career, so agents, you know, and editors might disagree with me. (laughs) And that's
0: that's the hard thing, isn't it? That it's like, you kind of don't want to define the market in certain terms, but like, if it is being defined in that way, you kind of have to go with it and then subvert it Without them knowing,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not even without them knowing. I think people always uh, want something a bit more fresh, a bit more, Absolutely. a bit more different. And I think, I mean, I I don't really worry over much whether I'm writing a YA book and adult book or new adult book, whatever that is. I just, uh, you know, I'm just trying to write the very best story I can, and. I leave the category to the sales team and to the booksellers because that is what they do, you know. So the moment you sort of fall into the trap um, of trying to tick boxes, that's when it stops being fun.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's that's one thing I will say. Now, re- regardless of what happens with this this manuscript this time around, doing this final edit, there's something freeing about it that I'm not saying oh, well, you know, it's got to be the YA box or it's, it's, it's got to have this because it can't push this too far. It's just, it's telling the story as it needs to be told. So I think that there is definitely something to be said about that. But I guess that's the advice that people often give is know your audience, know what you're going to do. And people can get caught up in that and start to censor themselves and edit themselves to fit what they perceive as their audience.
1: I think it's more about consistency. So if you start writing in a particular style uh, or you're setting up the book to be one thing, then you have to kind of continue and make it that thing. It's, I think like, to me it's more about um, keeping your promises <laughs> as a writer than it is about having a particular sort of age group in mind. I mean, it's different when you're like writing for children, but um, but when it comes to adults, you know, older teenagers, I, I, I think it's more about telling the best story you can. You know, again, I'm sure lots of people would disagree with me on that, but this is my, my view on it.
0: Well, but no, as I've said, I absolutely agree with you. And I wish that I had learned that lesson sooner because it's, it's been... <laughs> very freeing to sort of say this is the story that I want to tell and you know think about what audience this is going to fit but as you say just just keep it consistent the whole way through don't start off with you know a children's fairy tale and end with Game of Thrones like keep it consistent
1: yeah so you know don't start with a western and end with a romance novel by the seaside
0: I mean, I, I want to see if someone can get that done now, but it's it's not going to, it doesn't <laughs> sound like a good idea. So back to the second bell, you say that you're Polish, which I, I don't know a lot about Polish culture. When you were coming up with these things, did you take any sort of creative license with this? sort of stuff or, or was it very oh, rooted course. in traditional?
1: Um the thing about Slavic mythology and sort of Slavic pantheon, it's not the same as when people think about ancient Greek mythology or um ancient Norse mythology. There are no real written records because of the way that sort of history <laughs> went in that part of the world when 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 Poland and other Slavic countries were Christianized, the Church made a very solid effort to sort of eradicate the uh, the pagan beliefs and uh, pagan customs, or to incorporate them into uh, Christian worship. In sort of Scandinavian countries and even in the British Isles, there, there, there was more of a sort of concerted effort on behalf of the monks. It was actually uh, Christian monks who wrote down a lot of the old stories, old beliefs, and that's why they have survived to the modern day in the form they have. But the opposite was true uh, with Slavic culture. What we know now is basically just, it's been carefully um, pieced together from old stories, old legends, uh, songs, poems, Uh, bits of folklore and archaeological finds, as well as kind of linguistic sort of sciences trying to piece together how words have changed over time and links to kind of Vedic Hindu gods as well. There's there's an interesting link there. And all of that is what we now know to be pre-Christian Slavic folklore and Slavic pantheon. So what we have access to is not necessarily consistent in the way that ancient Greek myths and ancient uh, Norse myths are. You know, Loki will, is the trickster god in Norse mythology. You know, you can't present him as anything else than no. that. Whereas in uh, the example I um, always give is there's a god called Veles in, um, in Slavic sort of pantheon. And according to... Some uh, archaeologists or anthropologists, Veles was the god of the underworld. He ruled over the dead. He was was the darkness to Peron's light. And, you know, there, there was this sort of eternal struggle of the two brothers. And in another book I have on Slavic mythology, Veles is a god of cattle. There is no consistency across the different source materials that I have access to. So you trying to capture the feel of a mythology and slavic mythologies and slavic folklore has a very specific sort of feel to it and then you basically just as a writer just you know i'm not a scientist i am not an academic i'm not a scholar i just go magpie style pick out anything shiny try to give it this slavic feel that i remember from the stories um that were read to me as a child and just and just go with it and you know the second bell is inspired by slavic mythology but it's not it's not very close to it in terms of the straightforward stories of the strigas. So in, um, in Slavic mythology, strigas are just straightforward monsters, no nuance, no, uh, no redeeming <laughs> side, really. They're either the cursed dead that come back as a monster, or they are uh, people who are born as uh, with with two hearts and uh, they're kind of destined to be be those horrid monsters and, and they're sort of in the in the stories and the source materials where uh, they're little more than pan um, Slavic version of uh, vampires really they just sort of attack people in the forests and you know eat their flesh drink their blood and there's no complexity, really.
0: When I first read the word in in the book, I mm-hmm. instantly went to the only other time I've ever heard it mentioned, which was um, Andrei Sapkowski's The Witcher. And I just, mm-hmm. that's, that's why I sort of wanted to ask about the um, traditional side of things, because like they are vastly different.
1: It's completely but in Sapkowski's um, stories about Shagaz I think, uh, slightly closer to the kind of original source material, which is, is a, cursed, a cursed girl who, um, who sort of is turned into a monster during nighttime. But I kind of wanted to move away from that and I was thinking about. Uh, some of the stories about, you know, a child being born with two hearts and that child is a trigger, uh so sort of cursed from birth. And I thought, well, if it's a child born in a small community with two hearts, that child has a mother, what would this mother do? How would a small community treat a child that was born with two hearts? I mean, you know, from history, we pretty much know not very well.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, so uh, so how would the mother react? It would affect her, of course, as well. And that's, that was sort of this initial idea for the second bell, that it's a story about a mother and daughter uh, and their relationship. And uh, Salka's mother decides to leave on a voluntary banishment. Uh, she leaves the small community she grew up in and uh, joins the Striga village uh, high up in the mountains Uh, to raise her daughter so the the way I wanted to sort of structure it is that you you know you have this initial concept okay mother the mother sometimes will choose to leave with her with her child um but what then because of course you know if you grow up believing that um sugars are monsters then just because you're moved to protect your own child it doesn't mean that you automatically stop believing that this child is potentially a monster. And what it would be like to grow up with that kind of uh, stigma attached to you, if, if you were born a sugar and you're told that there is this untold disaster and catastrophe that you can bring on, on everybody around you, if you try and explore the potential within your own nature, within your other heart, what would it do to you long term? So that was my uh, my starting point. And obviously there's those two communities that the, the thing they do share, the, the humans and the sugars, they, they share the belief that being a sugar is a curse, that it's a terrible thing, that you're essentially a monster in spear at all times. And that if you lose the control and if you if your discipline wavers, you will turn into a horrific monster and those communities don't know what it means to be a sugar and that's quite key to me it's it's not about them having a concrete um image of what a sugar is or what those dangers connected to sugar nature are those are uh, beliefs that have remained within those communities for generations and it it's a taboo it's and the taboo so is like about, an
0: ingrained bias that's just yes, been I mean, but
1: bias or, you know, taboo, I would say more of a sort of taboo because you can't, you can't explore it. You try not to talk about it, not to think about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's forbidden to the knowledge is forbidden. So it's not about knowing exactly what will happen if you allow yourself to, to, to explore your second heart it's knowing that even thinking about it is forbidden
0: yeah no and that's really interesting and i think it sort of comes back to what you were saying before uh, with the whole ya adult conversation we were having that you're adding nuance to that and you're you're adding, you're taking the traditional folklore and you're adding a different version, which I suppose for Slavic mythology probably is a really good thing because as you say, it's it's a verbal um, history or a verbal mythology. So it changes from person to person. So I suppose there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to put your new spin on it too.
1: Yes, exactly. And um, what I really uh, find interesting in Slavic mythology is this sort of very elusive concept of the uh, mythology sort of atmosphere and and, and fee- the feel of it and uh, uh, Slavic mythologies and folklore um, they're it's very dark all of it is extremely dark and it's about the ever-present danger and there's danger everywhere it's 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 in the air you breathe it's in the water you drink it's in the forest in the field in your own home everywhere you are surrounded by monsters evil spirits or guardian spirits that guard something else than you (laughs) and (laughs) that you have to appease in one way or another or just be aware of the threat that they pose to you those creatures that uh, interact with you uh, do so with either sort of malevolent intentions or in a very transactional way so You can benefit from the relationship with the the spirits of the Slavic mythologies, but only in so far as you keep very strictly to your side of the bargain and that, you know, providing they don't have any ulterior motives. Uh, There's a story uh, I read as a a small child about a miner who um, had a deal struck with, let's call them sort of gnomes living inside the mountains, kind of gnome-like creatures every night he would bring them uh, bread uh, with butter and for that they would, lead, they would lead him to gold and they would sort of make sure that he was safe in, inside the mountain and then one day his, uh, his wife got uh, a little snippy with him and said well you always get, put so much butter on that bread just put something else on it butter is expensive just they won't know just put some mashed potatoes on them they won't know the difference it's dark in there anyway so um the foolish miner does as he's told and uh the creatures sort of (laughs) bring the mountain down upon him and destroy his home and kill him in his life kind of dark (laughs) as as you would as you would you know it's like the deal was butter man you know (laughs) so so um so so it's uh both and that's you know that's a child stories of like the children's uh, slavic stories are incredibly dark i really kind of respond to this um idea of a hidden world that is teeming with life if everything around you whether you can see it or not it has its spirit that is um that has its own agenda that interacts in the world in its own way that, And the villains of the Slavic mythologies are always so much more interesting than the heroes. I have to say. So, so so I like taking that and sort of putting a a different, trying to put a different spin on it while preserving that kind of atmosphere of, of of darkness, of dread, of like you know the, uh, the struggle to survive in a world that's beautiful but hostile.
0: Yeah, no, and that uh, you've made me want to go out and research um, Slavic mythology because <laughs> it sounds super interesting. And I think it's interesting too that your perspective about not wanting to put things in boxes or not wanting to shield certain audiences because we think they can't handle a nuanced conversation and all that sort of stuff. It's interesting that you say that because I think back to other cultures and their mythology, we think to even like fairy tales and stuff like that. They've been watered down in our culture, but clearly not in yours. So it's it's very interesting to see that because fairy tales are very dark. Original fairy tales, at least, are incredibly dark. Um, but we sort of watered them down. Um, whereas obviously in in your culture that didn't happen.
1: I think we don't give children enough credit. To be honest, I th- I think the tide is turning. I think I think there there is a change in terms of how we talk about mythologies. There's been some really interesting kind of retellings and offers who sort of started specialising in in uh, sort of regional folklore. You know, Holly Black has made wonderfully successful career out of um, bringing. Uh, anglo-Saxon folklore back to its roots essentially and you know she's written books for for children um you know for for young adults for 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 you know younger younger teens and and, and adults and the reason her books feel fresh is because she is really um, bringing it back to this kind of core sort of message of of, of uh, uh, of the old myths, uh, of the old legends, and it's almost like we've forgotten all of that. Everything is just sanitized and and made. Um, we, we we try to sanitize everything for children, make it more palatable. But you know, the the reason that the old stories for for old fairy tales were dark is because you ha- you sort of you're trying to prepare a child for the world. So well, you know, you can't shield uh, shield a child forever, can you?
0: I guess they. Um when When you do sanitize them, not not always when when you clean them up, but when you do sanitize them like that, they they kind of lose their soul. They lose the purpose. Like the purpose of these dark stories and these these creatures that are out to get you or they're out to trick you if you make certain deals with them and stuff. there's there's messages behind that. Like those stories are intended as you know cautionary tales for for the lessons that kids need in life. So you know they, they do need I mean, to, to learn sometimes annoyingly
1: those so. Obviously, it depends on like how on the nose they are. But when you look at uh, some of the um, ancient mythologies, you know, Norse mythologies or uh, ancient Greek mythologies, the the gods are not perfect. Quite the opposite, they are equipped with extremely human uh, foibles, and uh, they represented the world as. People of the time saw it. It's, it's you know obviously it's not it's not just for children. It's more about you know we are trying to kind of tell ourselves stories about how the world works and how we fit within it. And in in a way you know perfection is slightly boring. That's why uh, you know th- sort of modern fairy tales about pretty little fairies you know that that sort of flit from flower to flower are not. As interesting as the fairies that will come, and for a lock of your hair, they will bring your mother's sight back, or something like that. Yeah, like just it. making it up, it's just it's when when you take the uh, the, the sense of the kind of terror in turn. Ter- not I don't mean terror in, in a sort of horror sense. I mean when you take the uh, the sense of uh, dread or. Um, when you when you take this sense of um, being appreh- like being apprehensive about the world, then the story just becomes flatter. And, 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 and I really do welcome this, um, this return to kind of original sources and trying to make, you know, making them more modern and making them uh, sort of m- making them m- maybe deeper in some ways than there were in the original stories, but not but trying to preserve that feel of the of the original myths, I, it, it seems to be quite a trend. There's, um, I have on my table here, the, the Witch's Heart, which just arrived today by Genevieve Gornichek. I haven't read it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. It's sort of adding, uh, you know, modern, from what I can tell, adding more modern sensibility, but not losing that that authentic, that authenticity of, of the original myths.
0: Yeah, and and I guess to, to give it a different perspective that's not even to do with books but just to do with storytelling, if we were to look at um, Pixar's, you know, back catalogue of movies, like you look at their first movies, the original Toy Story, you look at uh, A Bug's Life and now you look at movies like soul or onward you know onward was about coping with the fact that their father died of a terminal illness like that's pretty heavy but obviously they did it in such a way that like kids enjoyed it like mm. hmm.
1: i mean children are capable of comprehending you know the, the the full range of human emotions they're not imperfect humans they no, that's correct they, yeah. I think they, they they can they understand things on a different level to an adult, obviously because all that experience, life experience isn't there. But I don't think we should deprive them of um, I think some, some sometimes people can be scared of making a child feel sad in a story or or a movie. and I mean it's it's just part of life and you kind of you have to learn to cope with those emotions and there is something very beautiful in experiencing uh, elements of sadness in art. And, That's right. And uh, I don't think children should be deprived of that.
0: Absolutely. And I think another point that it raises is that while a movie like Onward does deal with, you know, your father dying of a terminal illness, there are children who have to deal with that in real life and it might help them to see those those stories and see how these characters go through those things. So it's, it's important to acknowledge that sometimes there are children who do have it tough. And sometimes to see those characters is, is a means for them to say, okay, I can do this because this character has done that.
1: Absolutely. I think it's a very, very good point that. um, People go through all kinds of things that we hope they didn't have but we, you know, we we wish they didn't have to go through. Not representing that in any way, and not allowing them to see them their own uh, life being represented in some way, it's just it takes away from them. And I think for for the children who are sort of m- more fortunate, it takes away an opportunity to um, to to sort of empathize in in a way that doesn't feel too frightening and too immediate if you watch a movie where you see a child trying to come to terms with a parent's death that gives you a sort of i haven't seen the movie but uh, it gives you an introduction into um, in, in into that you know there's finality of life and that these things do happen and you can see this child sort of cope with it and you can see that they are mental processes that go, um, go alongside, you know, a sense of loss or a sense of, you know, grief. I think we do learn through stories. Like we, we, they give us so much. And I think that um, trying to take anything sad or anything frightening away uh, from, from children's stories is doing them the disservice.
0: Oh, absolutely. And that's why I've said for a very long time that I feel like it's better that children's first exposure to death is Mufasa or Dumbledore rather than a pet or their grandparents or, you know, their parents or something. Like I think it's it's a better first brush with with death than than someone that is literally in your life. So I, I I'm very much on board with that one. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's actually been really, really great. I love that, that these podcasts sort of go in all sorts of different directions and, and you know, you, you think you start talking about one thing and then you move on to something completely different, and I, I love it. And I could talk about writing for days and days on end. So thank <laughs> you so much for being on the podcast. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to find out more information about you or about your debut novel?
1: So I'm most active on Twitter. Um, so my handle is at Gabriela Houston, so it's pretty easy to find me. Um, so I'm on Twitter uh, virtually all the time <laughs> in COVID days. Um, and I also have a website Gabriellahouston.com. Um, and there and are links we can
0: leave links to those
1: in the thank description. You. I have set up a YouTube channel uh, recently with my friend Caroline Hardacre, who is also an Angry Robot uh, debut author. Her book, uh, The Composite Creatures, comes out in April. And um, our YouTube channel is called uh, Bookish Take. And uh, in it sort of like we expand a little bit more on uh, what we uh just discussed in terms of uh, writing tips and um it's it's sort of mini series of, of videos taking us from uh, the initial idea and how to sort of translate into a novel and then uh going out trying to uh find a, an agent and you know getting published eventually so it just premiered last monday <laughs> so we're very, very exciting i'll have to go it. and find
0: it and i'll have to go and subscribe to it
1: if, if you would like to have a, a signed uh, copy of a book, there's a particular bookseller, that, uh, an independent bookseller, I wanted to recommend um, the, uh, the Broken Binding. They uh, stock uh, signed copies of the second bell and signed copies of other books and they ship internationally.